Christian Moransky. I'd like to be known as Christian Barcelona. And I don't get that one. And with a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood tagline, Kelly Wand. Once upon <laughs> Now, see, thing is, I got that one. See? You gotta Kel- dumb it down for Tom. Kelly Wand, do you have a tagline for people who haven't seen the movie Us? Now we know what it would look like if Tarantino made a western. Uh, I do think it's kind of. Kelly, one, you have something to dig yourself out of that hole. Say what you will about the Manson family; they sell kick-ass cigarettes. I don't think you got the cigarette from a Manson family girl, though. Yeah, you did. That's a spoiler, but we'll get into that later. (laughs) Kelly, one, are there four, or were there only three taglines? (laughs) A hippie, fifty cents. Why not? Finally, a Tarantino movie with talking and Michael Madsen. <laughs> that was a nice, like, ride off into the sunset finish, Kelly Wand. Finally, a long movie called Once Upon a Time Somewhere. Yeah, I, I liked you riding off into the sunset with a Michael Madsen gag. That was way better. Oops. That's me receding. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's calling, Shane, come back. Just keep riding, Kelly Wand. You, you, you did great. You, you sort of leave them, leave them wanting more. I'm actually dead, and the horse knows I'm dead, but we're going to let the kid... The horse is being nice to the kid by throwing me off my body. So, Kelly, one, before you ride off into the sunset, were there more that we missed? I just want to no, give you a chance. That was too many. I agree with you. All right. Sorry well, if I implied otherwise. One of my favorite moments when I was substitute teaching was doing roll call and uh, at the beginning of a class, and one of the kids was Shane. And I said, Shane, come back. And the entire class just went, uh, yeah, Dingus, children haven't seen the movie it? Shane. They haven't even seen High Noon. No, he said they groaned. Yeah, they, they've, they'd they heard the joke before. <laughs> Maybe the baby Tom was trying to silence when he got told shut up fool got the joke. The baby. <laughs> uh, what movie are we talking about? I forgot again. Dingus, why don't you let the listeners know? All right, well, this week we saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A 2019 international co-production between the United States and the United Kingdom comedy drama movie about how we kill the ones who taught us to kill. It was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino and stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and a bunch of people. uh, It's fun to discover on your own, but not Burt Reynolds. Once Upon a Time in America is rated R for language throughout, some strong graphic violence, drug use, and sexual references. That counts as language. You can't just have two things, the same thing. Stupid and Sorry. Dingus, I don't know if this is the thing where it just rolls off your tongue or in your head it gets mixed up, but do you know you called it Once Upon a Time in America? Oh, I didn't. Yeah, because I, I, you know, there's Once Upon a Time in the West and in America, and I, I just... For... It still applies, though, Tom. That is true. Geographically, Dingus did nothing wrong. That's right. 
And he didn't change the time period. Kelly Wanda, there are other things that parents who are considering taking their children to the latest Brad Pitt movie should know. I'd caution people whose genes will go on that the movie contains proper use of LSD. Um, some feet. It's fun for the whole family if you're a Manson. Uh. All right, we'll, we'll put that on the poster, Kelly Wand. Uh, on Cinema Score, this has got a B. People who went to see it on a Friday and then were pulled afterwards, the opening Friday, with these little sheets you tear through your letter grade. Uh, the average grade from these folks was a B, and that's not good. Is that low? That's low. That's low, yeah. right? That's I, like I'm not F. surprised. I mean, come on. This like is a, a health Tar- code B. This is a Tarantino movie. Uh, Metacritic, it's at 84, the average rating from various reviews. On Rotten Tomatoes, the percentage of reviews that are positive is 85. It opened at number two. Uh, it didn't quite beat. <laughs> That's a the, B two. It didn't quite beat the Lion King's second weekend, uh, but it made oh, forty. What? It made forty-one million dollars, and it is uh, Tarantino's biggest opening. So uh, I'm sure he's quite pleased. Uh, Kelly Wand, I would now like you to synopsize the events in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I would also like you to tell the listeners if you were to do such a thing, what it, what would it be called? Uh, you mean come up with the title for what I'm going to do and announce that also? <laughs> I would call it uh, Once Upon a Time at Holly Whoopsus. All right. Well, that's what I want to hear. Or Holly Whoopsus. That sounds racist. Uh, you want to well, hear it? We, we do go to Italy, so. Right. I was thinking that. And even in a Godfather way, like just mm-hmm. real quick. Yep. Um, okay, sorry. Once Upon a Time at Holly Whoopsus. And in canceled 60s television western news, tonight on interview a former actor and his stunt double in a bar while the stunt double eats celery, <laughs> I'm speaking for some reason with 60s B-list actor Leonardo DiCaprio, title character of the black and white hit show from September 1957, Bounty Law. And well, hello, is this your niece? No, that's my stunt double, Brad Pitt. <laughs> sort of my how need him. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But he's masculine, unlike Swank. It's only different voice. Yeah, I carry his load. Kurt Russell's VO's all. DiCaprio's character in this drinks a lot. Here's a flashback. <laughs> Leo gets in a car and inserts the key. The car explodes. Stunt double. I couldn't help but notice you and Brad look nothing alike. Uh, different height. Um. Brad's all, dude, Cruz was going to play me. Picture that, Bruce Lee, dude. Later. (laughs) Ah, Mr. Pacino. It's pronounced Pacino. (laughs) Pacino. Pacino. Spelled like it sounds with an extra H. (laughs) It's Swabian. Leonardo, I've really enjoyed your character's recent work getting beaten up in the last five minutes of things on television. By iconic 60s tough guys like Raymond Burr and Bob Denver. Was that really you with the flamethrower in Titanic? That's what I call a western. There's a flashback of DiCaprio with a flamethrower. Ow, do we have one that's less hot? (laughs) Oh, so that's how that winds up in your pool house later. What other comical near misses in your backstory did uh, Quentin C.G.? Well, I came this close to getting a plum roll in Breakfast at Tiffany's. It was between me and five Mickeys. Gave it to Mickey Rooney. Also, here's some CG of me in The Great Escape. I guess it's from my audition. 
Leo squints at some CG of a Nazi. I think it's David Niven. Why are you holding fire cutters? Oh, God. Get out! He bounces a basketball off a wall. It doesn't bounce. Are you? The music's all... Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And then you lost that rule to Forrest Gump. Leo, I think it's time you feigned winning some fake on-screen fights. By making a spaghetti western about an eight-year-old girl who gets kidnapped and rolled onto a floor. By a man sitting on her lap. May tweak that part. I think you'd be terrific. Terrific is an alcoholic cattle baron threatens to shoot a kid in the face. Leo sighs, Italy instead of Burbank. Ugh. We watch from behind as Brad drives Leo around a bunch of 1960s CG while Tarantino plays us a mixtape. Leo sees a theater marquee for Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. They should reboot that shit! <laughs> Then Brad drops off Leo and drives her out separately to a different mixtape. Then Leo's neighbors drive around to other music. An hour later, in Brad's trailer, Brad's dog Brand, with an id, watches Brad plop dog food in a bowl and hopes he's not on acid. <laughs> Noticing there are no hippie groins in the room, the dog eats the food. <laughs> Brad heats some soup and mustard in a saucepan and eats it out of the pan. I roll my eyes. Way too many steps. The next day, Brad gets bored, so he jumps onto a guy's roof and takes his shirt off and starts stealing a TV antenna. <laughs> While Margot Robbie dances at a room. The next day, Kurt Russell talks to Leo in a different trailer. Hey, Leo, I'm my death-proof character in this, and the narrator. Can I ask you a personal question? Absolutely not. Not in your condition. Let's talk about my condition. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Speaking of which, I don't like Brad Pitt's character, even though I'm narrating a story where he's a badass, <laughs> because he killed his wife. There's a flashback to Brad sitting on a boat holding a harpoon gun while Bridget Fonda's all, Oh, Bradley, Mike's liberalism! <laughs> Beside me, De Niro starts cackling around his cigar. <laughs> so, Leo, I'd like to replace him with a football player I met named OJ. Look, Brad's cool. He totally saved my interview with that celery. <laughs> hey, remember when this happened? There's a flashback of DiCaprio dancing with a bunch of 60s people in tracksuits and singing in front of some letters that I think spell hoopus good lupus. Beside me, Quentin's all, It was so awesome having few entertainment choices when I was young. Oh, Kurt's all, I also don't like Brad because this happened the day Bruce Lee gave a famous speech to these extras next to Zoe Bell's car. <laughs> Things happen in life. You may not want them to, but they oh, do. God. The best you can do is to do your best and move on. Who said that? <laughs> uh, me, uh, Brad Pitt Beside me, the guy who played Chad Palomino And living in oblivion zone <laughs> I could kill you But I go to jail For murder Because my hands are lethal weapons Yes, that's your answer to everything, white man You lose every fight in Fight Club even to yourself. Minutes later, Zoe Bell's all, Me car! <laughs> Kurt's all, Or when this happened. 
Zoe Bell comes out to find Brad Pitt and Charles Bronson holding machine guns and her car is full of holes. What the? Kelly also wrote this joke. Zoe comes out to find Brad Pitt and Stanley Kubrick wearing spacesuits and her car is a monolith. Oh, I had a baby in the back seat. A baby. <laughs> the side minister glass is all classic Bell. <laughs> Heard if you don't like Brad, why are you the narrator of story where he's the hero? President of what? Meanwhile, in front of a saloon. <laughs> I'm Scoot McNary, except my name in this is businessman Scoot McNary. Lex <laughs> <laughs> Luther put pee in my wheelchair. Blow up Holly Hunter. Classic Snyder. <laughs> the side of Michael Madsen puts on a hat. I'm in this. In a dressing room. <laughs> In a dressing room, Leo's got a hangover while the director's all. Leo, I see your character as a sort of classic Mr. Glass. Well, sir, it's awful bright in here. <laughs> Naked Arnold sits down on top of Robert Evans beside me. And goes... In the classical, necromantic, tragic, fast, total retard, I play a boring, ordinary man made to the boring, ordinary wife, Shadstone. So I beat up the robot cabbie, and I pulled the poker out of my nose with the tongs, giant tongs. And then I wear the turban on my head to cool it. Then I get my head stuck in the machine that gives me the exciting life with the mannish three boob women's on the moon. The black cabbie with the Muppet tumor and the stomach named Quattle. <laughs> Till I make the Martian temperatures work better on my eyes. <laughs> I'm all, hey, look, sitting in front of you. It's Kevin Costner. <laughs> Arnold! Costner! That is his stunt double, Kevin Reynolds. Kevin Costner's across the hall seeing The Lion King. <laughs> I only disrupted his screening because I thought that was the restroom. Didn't notice until I finished three different activities. Meanwhile, Listener thought that was a character's sake. Meanwhile, oh yeah, stage direction. Meanwhile, so the farmer says, "How come that pig's got a wooden? Damn it, line!" Yeah, Leo, baby, doing great. It's a wooden leg. The uh, something right leg. That makes sense. Like George Washington's teeth. George Washington's teeth made from the cherry tree that he chopped down. Is that why he chopped? And action. So the line <laughs> says to the farmer, "Damn it, I dropped my pipe." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Leo, you weren't holding a pipe. Okay, from the top. Gotcha. I got this. Okay, here we go. And action. No, Leo, I say that. Right, sorry. Wooden, black, action. How come that farmer's got a wooden cock? <laughs> a manly handshake ensues. No, Leo, that last part was stage directions. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wenton does what he knows about acting, and I go to my sources. <laughs> my, uh... Is that acting class teacher? Anyway. Leo goes to his trailer and yells at his couch that he drinks too much. <laughs> Kurt Russell's VO's all, By the way, I'm the man in the closet. <laughs> yep. That's me, Dengus. Meanwhile, Margo sees a movie marquee for Matt Helm, the Wrecking Crew. Beside me, Connery's all. Uh, that'll be two cents. Oh, shit. What if I'm in the movie? Um, I'm an actress. Oh. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, right. I know you. Hey, I loved you in Zombieland. Not in uh, Gangster Squad so much. No, I was Suicide Squad. Oh, the one where Superman dies? Oh, that's all of them. Mine had Will Smith, Deadshot, Ryan Reynolds. <sighs> Did you see Wolf of Wall Street? I'm pretty memorable in that. Oh, yeah, Michael Douglas. I thought that was Daryl Hannah, though. And she is so good in that Tarantino movie. Meanwhile, a few streets away, Brad finds an underage hitchhiker. Hey. Hey, y'all, y'all heading my way this time, or do I got to make my sad face again? I'm Martha Marcy May Marlene. I live on Bruce Dern's ranch, his chicken ranch, with Charles Manson and Lisa Dunham. <laughs> talented fanning. And girls in homespun. These are my feet. I ain't bathed since Eisenhower. Yeah, how old are you? Hey, would a 14-year-old have this much armpit hair? <laughs> A carpet mat. Look, if I'm going to jail, uh, it ain't going to be for you. Haley Steinfeld, sure. But uh, I'm careful. <laughs> Unless I'm on a boat. Charlie, our great and holy leaders, the opener of the threshold. Long live the new flesh. Death the Videodrome. He says we're going to end the reign of the fascists and expand our minds through murder. The Beatles are probably all, yay, finally someone gets us. You're welcome. Meanwhile, Margo sits in the theater and flashes back to how Bruce Lee taught her to trip over stuff in a hotel lobby. Her <laughs> audience howls with laughter as they watch Margot Robbie watch Sharon Tate pretend to injure herself. A guy in the audience is all, hey, the wrecking crew's fucking hysterical. Good point, Quentin. Meanwhile, at Bruce Dirt's chicken ranch, uh, Bruce in, I was his stunt double in Silent Running. Dakota, Brad Pitt's in the driveway wearing a yellow shirt. <laughs> Go get Tex. Uh, my name's Tex. I'll be your guide for your horseback ride near Bruce Dern. Tex, latest is Brad Pitt's wearing a yellow shirt. Damn it, I'll be right there. Meanwhile, Brad scowls at Dakota through the porch screen door. Bruce is asleep. I screwed him this morning. You're screwing Bruce Dern? Since when? Earth. Oh, oh, oh no. Oh, that's <laughs> horrible. Come on, it's an homage. You are overware. <laughs> she doesn't listen. Brad walks down a hallway while 1940s horror music plays. He finds Bruce Dern asleep in a bed, as opposed to in a chair, like in Hateful Eight. Bruce, you awake? Burt Reynolds is supposed to play me. They had his heart set up playing a guy whose naps interrupted. By the way, we work together. Bye. As Brad leaves, he notices he accidentally ran over a knife. A weird man out of fence cackles at him. <laughs> Brad makes him change his tire by beating him while the girls make angry bird noises. Meanwhile. 
<laughs> in front of a saloon. Hey, little girl, what you reading there? Your sides? Nah, I only have a thousand and six lines. I memorized those before breakfast, just revisiting Gravity's Rainbow for the funny parts. How about you? What's your book? It's a, it's a western. Oh, what's it about? Oh, <clears throat> I've only been reading it for three weeks. Oh, what page are you on? One. <laughs> so what's happened so far? Well, Gene Hackman's a sheriff, he's evil or something, and I'm his son, and then Russell Crowe shows up, and Bishop from Aliens, uh, playing a character less dexterous, and Sharon Stone, Naked Arnold, nudges me, winking. And then I get raped by a bear and ride a horse off a cliff. This other guy, Tom Hardy, is incomprehensible. <laughs> Caprio starts sobbing so loud it wakes the little girl up. Huh? Leo, it's okay. The only real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And Wolf of Wall Street, you did great against Margo in that water fight. I think so. She's way taller. It's not really fair. And in The Departed, take that, Damon. That's <sighs> my first best picture after Titanic. Everybody's two favorites. Got robbed on Shutter Island. I told Marta that disappearing water glass was too subtle. Beside me, Gosling's all, cry me a river, half-pipe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Leo, you're always awesome. I never wanted you to take that iron mask off. Oh, say, whose character you like in this movie more, me or Brad? Uh, Later, while Leo sits in a chair <laughs> holding a gun to the little girl's head. Think you want to play a lawman for once, Oliphant? Well, guess what? I know y'all can get the job. Can you do the job? And cut. Leo, that was incredible. Love the improv of you slamming the kid to the floor. You okay, pumpkin puss? Well, I was wearing these elbow pads, but my knees are broken. On the bright side, Leo, <laughs> that was the best acting I've ever seen, although I've barely been alive any length of time. Yeah, the scene actually uh, is just supposed to be an empty chair. Um, it's Clint's suggestion, but uh, cool acting. My favorite was the floors. Kurt Russell's all. For six months, nothing happened. People drove around listening to music, and DiCaprio married an Italian woman who's not really in this. Then at 10.30 that night, DiCaprio blended some margaritas. Here's some footage. Meanwhile, other things were happening that don't require voiceover. Oh, yeah, that acid-tipped cigarette that armpit hair sold me. Meanwhile, in a car outside... Charlie said to kill who again? Everyone in that house, or in this movie, that house. But how'd he put it? That's how he put it. I don't know. Actors bring such joy to our... Will you filthy hippies get the fuck out of my driveway before I call the cops? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, this blender's heavy. <laughs> oh, now get out! Later. Okay, I'll go up the back way and trip over that hose. Oh, Fuck, I left my knife in the car. I'll be right back. Bye. Damn it, Tammy, hurry up. They watch her get into the car and speed off. <laughs> Damn it. Okay, not a deal breaker. Carrie, you trip over the hose. Meanwhile, holy shit, dog food tastes shiny. <laughs> Beside me, Addiston and Jolie roll their eyes. Wait, why is my dog at Leo's house? All right, asshole, me and these 13-year-old girls are going to murder you. Brad's all. 
The dog misunderstands and starts eating the hippies. They scream, so Brad hits one in the face with a can of dog food and kills the other one by bashing her head in on a mantelpiece. Beside me, John Landis yawns tiredly. <laughs> Leo's Italian wife walks in. Abundanza, Damien, why you do this to me? I... <laughs> Suddenly, Brad notices a knife Jeez. sticking out of his leg. The weird guy cackles at him again, so Brad beats him and makes him fix his knife issue again. Leo notices a woman screaming in his pool, so he takes a flamethrower out of his pool house and burns her alive in the pool. Me and my audience laugh and cheer delightedly. Beside me, Hitler's ghost scowls at Manson's ghost. Thumbs <laughs> oh. Tantino! Ah! In front of me, Oliver Stone stands up. Stick to the facts! <laughs> Later, his, his Brad's stretcher is loaded into an ambulance. Sir, I'm about to administrate some morphine for that knife wound. Have you had any other substances this evening? <laughs> uh, what planet is this? Beside me, Addison and Jolie <laughs> roll their eyes again. <laughs> Meanwhile, some cops are all, Mr. Pitt, was there any reason the dog food found in the dead hippie's uh, brain head wound had your saliva <laughs> on it? As the ambulance drives off to a mixtape, another cop's all, Mr. DiCaprio, if you could put the flamethrower down for a moment, and the blender. Um, one more time on the first part of your story. The little girl said a voyage of true discovery consisted not in seeking new what's. A nearby intercom's all, Hey, instead of getting murdered in this, you hear me say this over an intercom. How's that for a story? Beside me, Brad Stark yawns. <laughs> oh, sorry to disturb you, Ms. Roby. Robbie? Ms. Robbie? Your neighbor flamed through a hippie. Um, he was on a show called Bounty Law. Aw, that was my grandpa's 12th favorite western and 14th favorite way to kill hippies. Send him up. Some words tell me the names of Bruce Dern's Wranglers. Then, <laughs> hi, I used to play the character Bounty Law on the show. I forget the name. You know, red apple cigarettes are now laced with acid. <sighs> That's what I call the taste of ashes. Higher lift, Connor Windmill. Longer cough. Kill Gerard. Red Apple Cigarettes. The brand of nicotine. Also makers of the new cigarette-flavored apple. Now with cores. And cut. Damn it, I look fat. Is this a flashback? <laughs> Beside me, Nina Agdahl and Bar Raffaele are all... <sighs> Alright, so we all saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Who wants to go first? Uh, you know what? I saw it first, so I'll go first. Right, um, I... I, uh, I so Quentin Tarantino, of course, for it's like asking someone their favorite Coen Brothers movie. You can ask someone your favorite Quentin Tarantino movie, and it says more about the person than Quentin Tarantino. Uh, and I responded really strongly to this. This, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's still a little bit raw and new, but certainly this is the most effective for me personally. Quentin Tarantino movie has been in a long time. Uh, I, I loved this. Uh, my over and under. Uh, just because it's so high up in terms of how, how I feel about it right now, my over is similar to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in that it is a very poignant story about the shift from the 60s to the 70s, uh, mm -hmm. except this is a story set in uh, England where they had their own uh, their, their own uh, sort of uh, accounting to deal with through the 70s for the 60s, uh, with the Thatcher era after that, uh, but there was a similar journey going on, and Bruce Robinson made a movie 
in which he explored that shift, that transition, that kind of trauma through the relationship between two men in a movie called With Nail and I. And I love With Nail and I. It means a lot to me. I grew up on that movie. Uh, certainly, uh, Richard E. Grant is a national treasure of sorts. Um, so my over, just because it's been with me for so long, is With Nail and I, which I feel is a similar thing to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. My under is a rarely seen John Schlesinger movie that he did right around, it, I don't know if it was after, it must have been after Midnight Cowboy, but I think of it as, as a piece with Midnight Cowboy in that there's a lot in it about um, sexual dysfunction and, and, and weird relationships. and uh, So there's a movie based on a Nathaniel West short story called uh, Day of the Locust. Nathaniel West was uh, a, an ingenious short story writer who wrote four stories and then got killed, died in a car wreck. And one of the short stories was called Day of the Locust, and it was this kind of apocalyptic story about how awful Hollywood is. And John Schlesinger made it into a movie that almost no one has seen, but that I feel is a, is a classic of 70s cinema. Uh, and it is indeed about just how how morally bankrupt Hollywood is, and it has this horrible, violent, apocalyptic ending. And I think of it almost as the opposite side of the coin in terms of what Tarantino does with Hollywood and with the transformative power of violence in Once Upon a Time in America. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, but my under would be uh, Day of the Locust for reasons that we'll explore in a bit. So, Dingus, why don't you go next? What's an over and under? What did you think of this? And then throw it over to Kelly Wand. All right. Uh, I quite like this. I'm not as big of a – I'm not as big aficionado of 70s movies that you guys are. Uh, this felt very 70s to me. Uh, but I get the idea of the transition between 60s and 70s, and one of our writer writers talks about that a little bit, um, or our only writer inner. Uh, so over this, I would put because I really, I really do appreciate a movie that can nail a period um, that gets the cars right, that you know shapes the buildings right, whether they're CG or not. That gets the because I know this area so well. Uh, that gets the 101 in a different way because he gets on the 101 and there's all these cars and everything and I. I always think about those things, and Kelly Wan makes fun of us for this, but I just think about it. how do you, how do you shut down that freeway? How do you do all of those things? So I really like that. So over this, I would put the movie Roma because I thought that movie really got uh, the period just right. It has a totally different tone than this, but I was just going as far as period was concerned because I think that Quentin Tarantino was really – careful and obviously showed a great deal of love for the period under this uh i would put and this is a little farther uh further rather below uh this movie i would put hail caesar it's interesting that you bring up the coen brothers um i would put hail caesar below it because uh because it's a different toned movie but it's also about making movies um so kelly what do you think uh, even the murders made me homesick. I was really just going, oh, I feel like I'm back. And it's, uh, it was great. No, it, the way, it, the way it captures, um, how you ever, you hear what, what other, what's on other people's radios in LA in the seventies. 
anyway, no, it's like this movie is just filled with little things that, like, if the rest of the movie sucked, I'd like it just for that. And uh, one moment was when. Uh, do you remember Roman Polanski's dog's name? I do um, not. Is he in the movie? Roman Polanski's dog, or no? Yeah, Saperstein. Oh, right, right, right. Oh, Very good. Right, oh, the, the doctor oh. from Rosemary's Baby. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Brad and Leo's names are transposed over their bodies when they're in silhouette, but really quickly at the beginning. Um, it's just, I loved everything about it. It was great. I thought it was a, a, a lovely movie, a lovely night out. Uh, my over, I just went with Once Upon a Time movies because I didn't really know what to compare it to. Uh, so my over is Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, which I think I like a little more, which one I've seen most recently. And my under is uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, which is lamer right. than Desperado. <laughs> That's the worst Once Upon a Time. But, uh, yeah, Day of the Locust, huh? Interesting. Do you know Day of the Locust, Kelly? One? It seems like something no. you would know. Oh. Do you know no. Nathaniel West? Uh, no. Okay, no. well, you should get acquainted. You... It's it's right up your alley. What yeah. should I read first? Uh, well, Miss Lonely Hearts and Day of the Locust are really the only one. Like the, it's a short story? Yeah, it's, it's just four short stories. Uh, he's, um... There's a lot of raw talent there, but the ones that really stand out are Miss Lonely Hearts, and especially Day of the Locust, and certainly the way that uh, John Schlesinger, and I don't know who did the script for him, I don't know if Schlesinger wrote his own scripts, but the way that it was realized into, because he wrote in the 40s, uh, Nathaniel West's vision of Hollywood uh, wasn't the 70s Hollywood that John Schlesinger was working in, but it was a period piece about Hollywood back then. Um, So you should definitely check out the movie. The movie is... It's a great realization of Nathaniel West's short story, but it's still very much 70s cinema, very John Schlesinger's, lots of that same Midnight Cowboy dysfunction. Um, but yeah, you, you would like those, I think. Dingus doesn't like the 70s movies. I didn't know So that. I, I want to bring – so this movie um, – well, let me ask you guys first because I want you guys to go first because I'm still sort of struggling with how to articulate this. Um, how did you guys feel about what happened to the ending? And because I find it, this is a difficult movie. As a matter of fact, I would say this is an impossible movie to discuss with someone without spoiling that Quentin Tarantino does that Inglorious Bastards thing at the right. end. Right. Because I didn't such... know. I went in not knowing that. I was really glad. Yeah. And and I can't imagine because I I think that's an important part of of how this movie makes you feel, and it's a it's a fundamental mm. part of the experience. And in a way, it made me really sad. Uh, and I want to know. Yeah, how did that work for you guys? Obviously, I think none of us knew because we avoid those kinds of spoilers. But I think anybody who hasn't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the first, I don't know, two, three weeks of its release is probably going to have that spoiled for him or her if they have a conversation about the movie. Um, which That'd I be think unfortunate because it's really good if you didn't. Okay. Because I, I go, you know, I wasn't expecting it at all. And I was going, oh, this is really suspenseful and it's going to be a bummer. And. Because I'd seen Inglorious Bastards, I go, well, he would do that again. So I'm really not expecting right, it. So right, right. I was twice so well, yeah, like I was so wondering. I, I was so thinking the same thing, Kelly Wand. Like, oh, he's he's got to follow through this time. He can't give us another Inglorious Bastards, gl- right? Because there's all was these a like crazy mind games. Time, right? Yeah, yeah. Plus, it's Sharon Tate. Like, it's a real. Like, it's kind of recent, and and those character, the ones, the murderers are still alive. I think the ones who die in the movie and get flame thrown. But it's so I love I think it's just a brilliant move. It is sad too, but it also it, it's perfect for the movie and it's sort of like an alternate reality sort of thing. But it's also a great punitive measure against the killers. You know what I mean? Like it just totally takes like now you're not even now you're just a food on in the movies, like for us to laugh at. 
So I thought that was cool. Like it's a public service in a way. But now he can't do it. Like now I'll be expecting it every movie. So if he ever <laughs> it's like fast. It's a third time. I'll be oh come on. Yeah, it's like M Night Shyamalan. He's got you know you can get one. You maybe you can get a second twist in before it becomes your shtick and then right. it doesn't work anymore. Right. But he's right. playing with us to go. Oh, it's a Tarantino movie and we know it's going to happen. And then Kurt Russell's narrating it like it's going to be a, this big crime thing. No, it was great. It really took me by surprise, and that's one reason I really liked it. But I was liking it before that, too. Like, I liked even when it was slow. I loved all the characters. Of the well, we'll get with that. So, Dingus, what, what about the, the whole switch? How did that work for you? How did that make you feel? Did you see it coming? Uh, what, talk us through your reaction to, to, have, to the ending, the way it played out. All right. But, well, before I say that, let me just say that our writer inner Justin D. Heard, uh did say that he feels like um, uh, it seems like the endings break the films of Quentin Tarantino for him, especially Quentin, uh, especially in Glorious Bastard, which he says S is the bed. Um, <laughs> so he hates, uh, them, he hates them both, those endings. Uh, he's not a fan of this movie, but he likes parts of it. But from my point of view, when I was watching the movie, one of the notes I wrote was I'm dreading the coming bloodbath. Because I know Quentin Tarantino, and I know that, you know, having seen especially Django Unchained, uh, yeah, which told is, us, which is a mansion just where the with the walls painted with blood, uh, I was expecting that to happen. I was just expecting that to be the standard ending, and when he, uh, kind of took uh, an unexpected detour or exit, um. I was actually pretty pleased with that. I didn't quite understand it. I wasn't expecting it at all. So to speak to your point, Tom, I did not see it coming. I did not see, uh, I didn't really understand the, I, I don't, I didn't understand the geography quite as far as where Brad Pitt's house was and where the other people's house was and, and how they would have wound up at this guy who insulted them and beat up their friend's house. Um, but I kind of liked it in the sense of a broken expectation. Uh, and it's as, as clear as that, it's just, he broke my expectation and that's usually a comic term, but for this particular movie that he did that with this, cause I was expecting a Manson bloodbath, uh, recreation and instead he went a different route. And he just made his own alternate history. And I think that uh, I would actually disagree with you guys that he can't get away with it more times. I think that he can. There's a lot he can plumb as far as making alternate histories uh, and good on him for trying it. Uh, I, I actually really appreciated the fact that I didn't have to see Sharon Tate and her baby murdered and all of that. Um, and that. There's this weird Brad Pitt dog food, that awesome dog who Justin, Justin DeHerd says is probably second only to Sam from I Am, Le I Am a Legend. Uh, I really loved that dog, and I liked their relationship, and I liked the way that Brad Pitt's character related to him, uh, and I liked the way that worked in that scene. What did you think, Tom? 
yeah, the dog is kind of a Chekhov's dog in a way. Like they, I love how they establish that the dog is patient and that you know, two cans. Somebody, somebody busts into the house with a, with a gun and knives, clearly threatening, and the dog is just that disciplined. He's he wants to jump, and that's been established. Like that's great. Um, but I, the, the reason I would say. Uh, you know, I would love for him to do more of this, but I don't think it can work the same way because what I think is a fundamental part of this movie uh, – this movie works on two levels. It works if there, there's a point where uh, Brad Pitt is turning to drive up to Rick Dalton's house, and the camera pans to the right, and you see a big sign that says CLO Drive. And there are two kinds of people watching – um, once upon a time in Hollywood, and there are some people who will not understand the significance of that, and then there are other people for whom that will be that that sense of dread will start to kick in, um, mm-hmm. because Cielo Drive is famous for the Manson murders, and uh, you know I don't know, I, like I know Dealey enough Plaza. about them. Pardon? It's like Dealey Plaza. What happened on Dealey Plaza? JFK got Kennedy. Ah, right. Okay. Um, so uh, I I think that. The, a fundamental part of this this movie, that, and especially that twist working, is the sense of dread that he is instilling over time, and it, yeah. it starts earlier for for some uh, for some rather than others who know a little bit about the Manson murders. But regardless, even once you get to the way the title cards work, for instance, and the way the timestamps are working and the narration, clearly Kurt Russell is narrating this like it's a crime drama and it's going to be a moment-to-moment thing. Um, and part of the dread, too, is that I knew that Cliff Booth and, and Rick Dalton were fictional characters, so anything could happen to them. You know, I knew that uh, that, that Jay Sebring, whatever, and that, that Sharon Tate and the other two people stand. I knew they were going to die, but I didn't know. He's now introduced us and made us to and made us care about these other two characters who are fictional, so he can do anything with them. So my dread is compounded not only by the fact that the Tate murders are going to happen, but that here are these two guys that I really like and I really admire their relationship, and he's really developed these characters in yeah. some affectionate ways, and they are going to get in the way. Um, and so... I, I think that dread is the key to why the ending is so sad, um, because the ending isn't what happened. And we live in a crappier world. It's like a... why? Why do you characterize that as sad, though? Because the ending is so. A lot of I think what's going on in this movie is this is this is pre 70s thing. I would say this is not 70s cinema. You 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 reference this as 70s cinema, but I think this is pre 70s cinema. 70s cinema got very dark and, and Day of the Locust by the way, it's a, it's it's a, it's, exa- it's exemplary of what 70s cinema does. It got very dark and the conventional wisdom is it's in response to things like uh, the growing movement of counterculture, the civil rights struggle, Watergate, Vietnam, uh, the Manson murders specifically in Hollywood. Uh, but the 70s were a, a much darker, more cynical period after what's being portrayed in this movie. This movie is sort of like the dying gasp of this Eisenhower-era optimism. Manson was um, that. But isn't, but aren't, isn't the style of shooting and filmmaking kind of 70s no not really uh i think it's because it's very it's very colorful it's very glamorous uh it loves neon it's it's exuberant it's enthusiastic uh and also certainly the way that he's doing a nod to these older westerns none of that is like 70 stuff it's very traditional hollywood and it's before hollywood i feel went through the growing pains of the 70s um which kind of represented yeah. So, so the reason that I feel that it's sad is 
this movie gives us the perfect world that cinema wanted yeah. to give us before it took that darker turn. This movie gives uh. us the world that in the 60s, we thought – I mean we. I was a little kid. But in the 60s, we as a country thought we were going to get. This movie – Go to the moon. Give, this movie gives us that this, this world where the people who would perpetrate this horrific violence have it practiced upon them. Uh, and there's this really weird feeling of, of – I think you referenced it before, Kelly Wan – of justice. Um, and – what Quentin Tarantino does is he knows we're expecting this horrific violence, right. but he makes it a just violence, and it's ah. it's it's oddly it's thrilling in a really uncomfortable, sad way. I mean, I feel sad that I am happy to watch this redheaded girl's face bashed in on a fireplace mantle and up against a phone. I mean, I I feel sad that knowing. That horrific stuff happened to Sharon Tate and, and her friends in that house and other people, by the way. The Manson family went on to kill other people in the ensuing days. Yeah. Um, but I feel sad watching this violence and knowing, yeah, it's very real, but it happened to other people. You know, this sort of horrific thing happened to people who didn't deserve it. And in this movie, Quentin Tarantino gives us Sharon Tate as this golden girl, this representation of innocence and wide-eyed yeah. uh, exuberance about Hollywood. Um, and innocence was preserved in this alternate history. Exactly. In this alternate history, America doesn't lose her innocence. And that's what made me sad. And it's also, I, I feel... And I hate to make everything about Trump, but it's incredibly trenchant in that I have a similar thing going through the Obama administration and instead experiencing uh, the Trump administration in the wake of that. Uh, I feel like that same – it just makes me sad right now that we had a similar threshold. And one of these days someone is going to make a movie or some pivotal event, whether it's a mass shooting or a terrorist event or even just the election of Trump, where some pivotal event will not happen – and we can imagine what if the world had continued from what the the progress that was made during the Obama administration. Um, so, so Quentin Tarantino is giving us permission, essentially, to uh, enjoy the violence. Yes. And and I think yes. that, by the way, that's what a lot of movies do. That's like that's the classic trope for revenge m movies, in a way, is because violence is, and and you know, this has been something that that. Uh, entertainment has been aware of since Greek drama and this idea of catharsis. Violence is uh, an incredible, in a weird way, it's incredibly freeing to experience it in entertainment. Uh, whether it's the end of Titus Andronicus or the end of something horrible and wretched, like I spit on your grave, that's what that's going for. Uh, this reminds me, and I don't think it's, it's spoiling anything to say too much about it, to say this about it. Uh, the woman who made The Babadook is an Australian director named uh, Jennifer Kent. In her most recent movie, The Nightingale, I felt uh, – I have very similar feelings about The Nightingale. The Nightingale is an absolutely beautiful movie about history and violence. Um, and, and so, yeah, in entertainment, violence can be thrilling if it is justified um, because really we do – Part of, you know, we as human beings feel powerless when terrible things happen. That's part of the human condition is there are terrible things happening and you can't stop them. So these these violent flips are power fantasies against the terrible things that happen. You know, what if we could 
turn that on its head and the people who would do these terrible things if we could have that happen to them. Um, but yeah, like any, I think any solid revenge movie or any movie that is about the transformative power of violence or, or empowering violence, um, yeah, this movie gives us permission to be happy to see a young woman hit in the face and have her jaw locate, dislocated with a can of dog food. Um, and that's that's wretched. I mean, it's a horrific effect. You know, that, that woman's face with the glass in it and swollen and her jaw broken. It's so weird that we are happy to see that. Um, and it's, She's alive it, in RL, I think, or one of them is. So are, are you just – are you talking about – okay, because there's two different things here that, that I'm, I'm hearing you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm hearing you say that it makes you sad, but are you against the idea of somebody rewriting history with a movie? Like if Quentin Tarantino were to make a JFK where you know Lee Harvey Oswald is dragged out of the tower before he can shoot. And tor- and tortured or uh, taken off or whatever. Uh, are you against that happening, or is it just that? Uh, are these two different things that it makes you sad, or do you think it shouldn't happen? It's a great question. So it makes me sad for the historical reality we faced instead of the historical reality we got. Uh, it, it, it makes me sad that I watched a movie where everything ended up great and I was happy and I felt comfortable and reassured and uh, then had to walk uh, out of the theater and not be there. Like the, the thing that I tweeted afterwards was sometimes you want someone to tell you it's going to be okay even though it's not going to be okay. And that's right. kind of the sadness I felt watching this movie where Quentin Tarantino takes you back into this horrible turning point in our country uh, and – paints a world where it's going to be okay and and there's this kind of very pleasant glow at the end of that movie and and clearly the imagery too of a disembodied voice ushering leonardo dicaprio up through gates uh like clearly there's this sense of ascension and i I, you know i I just felt kind of just a burden lifted from my shoulder just at that moment this dread that i'd been experiencing i was spared of what i was dreading and instead got this sense of redemption catharsis unexpected catharsis well exactly and so the thing is oh go ahead go ahead i had that feeling as well of but i didn't feel sad because of it i felt kind of a bit of relief Like, uh, and I agree with the way you put that, that disembodied voice, because it feels like he was being invited into heaven almost uh, because of the way the gates open and, and walks up and uh, and hugs her. And, and, and Margo's an angel. And invites him in and whatnot. Uh, but it didn't make me sad in the way that it makes you sad. Well, I mean, I, does it like when you think about what really happened to, to Sharon Tate, like that's. Doesn't that make you sad? I mean, I, I wanted well, this yeah. to happen, and that's not what happened. Yeah. And I'm keenly aware of that after the movie is over. And that's kind of what makes me sad. Like, is that this is the way the world should have been? Um, this is the this is this is uh, the ideal reality. This is the perfect world. This is the world that we should get and that we don't have. And and I, yeah. but I get what you're saying, Ding. It's like you're you're not supposed to feel sad. I think at the end of the movie. Um, well, but but we here's see, we've seen that story before, though. I mean, we've seen. Helter Skelter or Red Helter Skelter or whatever. I mean, we've we've seen this story before, so that Quentin Tarantino taking a different take on it uh, and surprising me with it doesn't make me sad. So here, here you asked too if I, I thought that this sort of alternate reality should or shouldn't be made, and yeah. I I feel it definitely. So uh, there have been a couple of movies, re- and I don't know if it's. I, I guess. I, I, pardon. <laughs> no, I get. I guess the idea is it's what are the. 
40-year anniversary. There's too much math involved. But for some reason, there have been a cluster of, of Manson family murder movies recently, uh, one of which is called, I think, Summer of the Wolf or Wolf at the Door or something. And, and they play it out. I'm watching this movie, and I, I thought it was just like a, a slasher movie. And I thought it was going to be a crappy horror movie. But as the movie is progressing, it's clearly a retelling of the murder of Sharon Tate and her friends. And it just made me feel gross and sick watching it because it was a lurid slasher movie. And I feel it's a horrible, you, you know, like I've said before, I don't care about source material, but I care about reality. And this movie is invoking the horrible things that happened to Sharon Tate to make a stupidly titillating horror movie. And I, I was just disgusted at that. There's a, a movie with, um, it's called The Haunting of Sharon Tate. And there's some famous young, um, Hilary Duff maybe, I think plays Sharon Tate. Yeah, yeah, you're uh, right. Yeah, And I haven't seen that and have no desire to see it because I, I feel that these things do... A disservice to what happened to that horrible moment of, of, of violence uh, by making it titillating in a dumb horror movie, um, and I don't I don't like to see that. There is a, there are a couple of movies about uh, there was some horrible situation where a young girl in, in a woman's foster care was kept in the basement and tortured, and there have been two movies made about that. One with Catherine Keener and Ellen Page, and they're typical like oh girl in the basement horror movies. And knowing that they were based on real stories was just disgusting to me. And I, 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 you know, I don't take offense at most movies. And I think, yeah, any movie, sure. If whatever you want to do with your movie, good luck, go for it. But, but movies like this that exploit real tragedies and real violence just disgust me. Uh, and they're trash for the most part. Um, so this, I felt like a. This felt to me like a really. This to me honored what happened to Sharon Tate. Uh, in that it made me feel it, – it, it made what happened to her – it made the impact of what happened to her without oh. representing it as titillating violence. Without showing me what happened to her, it made me – it was like a memorial to her. Uh, and it was a memorial to her putting her on a pedestal, like representing her as the innocence of America. I mean this is an incredibly beautiful thing to do to, what, to, to the tragedy of, of Sharon Tate and her friends. Uh, oh. So, Dingus, when you say, how do I feel about these alternate realities, I, I think this one is beautiful. Case uh, by case. Well, that's yeah. really interesting to me because I was interpreting – I was interpreting the way that you use the word sad as um, a pejorative toward the movie. Maybe wistful would be a better word. Uh, well, no, no. I mean I understand it now that you've explained it because it just made you sad for – it made you sad about the situation, and uh, but what you've what what you've just expressed clarifies that because you have respect and you use the word honor, which I find fascinating. That this movie can alternately make you feel sad because of the way it it uh, the way it reminds you of what happened, right. but you feel that it honors the characters. Which and, I, and, yeah, the I characters think, and the event. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's certainly an idealized version of of, of Sharon Tate. I, I love, for instance, um, her watching herself in the movie and the way yeah. that those glasses give her this wide-eyed innocence. Like it, it exaggerates this wide-eyed innocence and just taking in the color and the charm and the hopefulness and optimism of Hollywood through the screen into she's those so big old excited. glasses. Yeah. yeah, and she's so, so excited, and Margot uh, Robbie's smile is just, just radiant. It's beatific, really, is the way to describe it. Loves uh, that, being that, in that, Wrecking that, Crew. 
that's happiest. A, that's a great way to put it. And just the fact that of her bare feet there on the on the seat, uh, and just uh, you, it, what I didn't know. Uh, there's this moment where she gets to the theater at first, goes and looks at the poster, then goes away to somewhere else, then comes back and goes, all right, I'm going in. And I get the sense that she's been here many times and uh, that this is kind of church for her. So I, well, I she like... likes to watch an audience react to her or like watching it with an audience. No, I think she likes to watch... I think I think it's a, an inc- incredibly personal experience for her. No, but when they react to her on screen, she gets she like smiles. It's like oh, they got they like what I felt, which I guess is what you're saying. Personal. And she she just yeah like like I think she is delighted at the reaction, and I feel like it's like like the thing is she's not a uh, and, and Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino clearly makes it this way. She's not a diva. Uh, yeah. She, there, yeah. There's none. There's no pretension to her, and she is clearly delighted that what she is doing is making the audience react and enjoy themselves. Like, uh, the, and and it's by the way, I, I you know I've seen this a couple of times, and it's when you watch it a second time, the way that Quentin Tarantino structures these three different threads. Uh, while she is watching this, this this sort of beautiful portrayal of innocence and optimism and color and happiness and joy and you know emerging through a screen and entertaining people, the parallel things that are happening are, I think, a fantastic scene with Leonardo DiCaprio really showing what he can do. Like I th- Leonardo DiCaprio is amazing yeah. in this. Uh, yeah. This is one of my, f- I think my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio. It's really, it's really unprecedented, yeah. Kelly Wand. Like it's, it's so, it's so vulnerable and uh, it, it's, there's no sense there of, of Leonardo DiCaprio as like a superstar. There's, oh. he, there's a, just a really, the, the, and what, what I love too about the character is he is self-aware enough to, to be insecure <laughs> like yeah, like yeah. that insecurity isn't just n- n- being neurotic that insecurity is really a self-awareness of his limitations as an actor and his career yeah. uh and so so the three things that are happening concurrently uh and this is and then it cuts to six months later when uh leonardo dicaprio and brad pitt go to room the three things that are happening concurrently are uh sharon tate is enjoying what hollywood creates um Leonardo DiCaprio is working to create what Hollywood creates. You know, he's working on a set, and he's really having a difficult time of it. And he's demonstrating um, how, you know, what I think a professional actor can go through. And that's where I think that little girl is an idealized version of this, too. Like, she is the very picture of propriety and professionalism, and she's almost like this muse to him like almost to the point you're like is that really a character like is she is he imagining right. her um right. so and then the third thing that's going on is cliff booth visiting the spawn ranch um and that plays like a horror movie because yeah. you're dreading what's going to happen you know quentin yep. tarantino makes us think that this is where cliff is going to get killed uh, that he's walking into a place that he can't escape from. Uh, so these three things are happening concurrently, and I feel that their concurrence is the point of the movie. Um, uh, so how do you feel about – because uh, Justin D. Heard doesn't really like the flashback structure of the movie. How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, I think – isn't it – there are a couple of flashes, but there's only one I, – I would have to – like the the one – 
so so there's the flashback where where uh, Cliff Booth goes up on the roof to repair the the antenna, and he flashes right. back to why he's unable to work that day as a stuntman. Because he says to Rick, can you get me a, a job? And Rick's like, yeah, sorry, the guy on the crew is – it's whatever Kurt Russell's name is. Is this di- dude, so you won't be getting a job this time. So th- when he goes on the roof, he's flashing back to his history there. Uh, and it, it's that moment with Bruce Lee and that lovely bit where Zoe Bell uh. comes out. Uh, that's the flashback. And the flashback ends cutting back to Cliff on the roof and chuckling and saying, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I know. Which, which reminds great. me, by the way, of the, the opening, the bookends of Fight Club, where yeah. he's got the gun in, in Edward Norton's humor. mouth, and he says, yeah, fl- oh, flashback humor, <laughs> yeah. where he's, he's talking up to his flashback in a way. So um, avuncular. I love yeah, the yeah. idea of a matchup, like, oh, it's a stuntman who tied with Bruce Lee. Like, that's what, that's another Chekhov's guy's like, oh, like, versus Manson. Well, I like I mean, the the rare bit of subtlety in the flashback with the harpoon, because yeah. of, often Quentin will overdo. He's a that. war hero too. Who murdered but, his wife? But he, he kills just, everybody. Yeah. But you get the sense of, oh, this is when that happened, and then they just cut away from it, and that's that. Yeah. Maybe he and, didn't murder his wife. It's just misdirection. And the and they also, I think they they make it clear too that he is. You know, with the way he drives, the way he hops up on the roof, right. uh, that that he is—he's an accomplished stuntman and war hero and warrior—and you, you know that also is when he's on LSD. I, I feel like that's us being <laughs> set up for this guy being taken down. Like this is when he's vulnerable and he's not right. on his guard. You know, this this is going to be his downfall. Like this is how it's going to explain that he's. That these punks get exactly. He's given that these punks get the drop on him. Um, uh, so, so again, I feel me. like all that's those little pre- red herrings were working. Yeah. Me. Like you just said, like when he goes to visit the ranch, like oh no, we're gonna lose Brad Pitt halfway right. through the movie, like Travolta and Pulp Fiction. Well, that, that's Quentin Tarantino. So gaslight. Yeah, that's of, good. Great you, you, can, you feel like anything could happen to anybody at any time. Yeah. And I kind of like that in a director that he set his. Um, his oeuvre, if you will, uh, to the point where I feel like uh, I can trust you to tell a story for the most part, although I haven't liked some of the last couple of movies he's made, but I can trust the fact that uh, he's going to do I, that. Uh, this, this is going to sound weird. I can trust the fact that I can't trust that every characters that the characters I normally expect are going to make it through or going to make it through. And that increases my tension, which actually increases my enjoyment. Um, and I really like that fact about that scene that you're, that sequence that you're talking about, Tom, where they, where he visits the ranch and there's, and it feels like a horror movie. It feels like a bunch of feral children who could just jump on him and eat him. Uh, and, or, yeah, and, obviously, and their car's creepy too, like Christine. Yeah, and obviously yeah. George Spawn is dead in the back room, and that's and, right. you know, and the and the music that Dakota Fanning, you know, the the TV that Dakota show that Dakota Fanning is watching is that horror music. Yeah, as he's creeping back yeah. in. The, yeah, clearly this is where he dies. You know, clearly this is where we set up. This is the end of Cliff Booth. Um, yeah. And he's about to leave, and he's all, eh, "I'm going in." Like, oh, the Kelly, on your is use so of avuncular, like Brad Pitt's a little bit too hot to be called avuncular, but but I can't avoid it. You're, there's just something so avuncular about him at this point. So uh, cheery. 
He's so just cheery and reassuring, and yeah, like that's that's the, that's what an uncle should be like. That's the idealized uncle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Lives Please. in a trailer. Loves it. Loves Please. his life. He's like Margot Robbie almost. Well, he's described as to as being too pretty to be a stuntman. <laughs> Right, he's a pretty boy. That's so. what they tell me. Yeah, he knows it too. Right. Yeah, right. that's what they tell me. And, and apparently, it's like the, those black and white westerns, and the idea of it, like DiCaprio's look had just gone out of fashion by chance. Like that's why, like he wasn't too old to be that kind of, like it was turning into the seventies. Like saying, like different kind of leading man, like uh, Al Pacino kind of leading man. Well, the, I mean, you know, Steve. I mean, I, I loved this movie's uh, disdain because I share it uh, for Steve McQueen, for instance, like some of those earlier leading men. <laughs> Damien Lewis as Steve McQueen, just as uh, uh, spot on. I loved that. <laughs> I like Charles Bronson more than Steve McQueen, but I like Steve McQueen. I just I don't movies, get the so appeal of Steve no? McQueen. I, yeah, but I do love that. Uh, you know, you like Sandpapers, bro. I loved his last line about, you know, I, I never stood a chance. <laughs> like, compared to these uh, short 12-year-old boys who were, like, what, what did, I forgot what the, it was something like uh, short, talented 12-year-old boy geniuses or something. And that's yeah. where Steve McQueen says, yep, I never stood a chance. <laughs> so his job is being on the FBI stuff, those kind of shows, those procedurals that used to, people used to watch. Right, right. There's no old people in this movie that I remember. Like, Come on, there's a Norman Fell appearance, Kelly Wan. I thought you would enjoy that. That's true. I did enjoy it, there's but he's Bruce, not. It's not really about his life. There's much. Bruce Dern. He's an old person. He's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Show up. The director's a little old, I guess. But yeah, it's um, you know, I think I don't know. It was it was an adorable movie. I should watch it again. It's pretty. Uh, it holds up. Like it's it's a, a long movie. It's, I mean, I guess it depends on how much it works for you. But it's a long movie that to me does not feel long. Uh, I. It, and it's it's also I mean this is it's certainly fair to use this either either as a criticism or a praise or even a simple observation, but it's incredibly indulgent. I mean yeah. there are lots of just long scenes of people driving. Um, you yeah, know this could, this could easily be cut down sections. I'm not sure I understood necessarily, uh, but it's super indulgent, and I'm I'm glad about that. I needed like, a I needed a I needed a fix of L.A. And, and I also like I've just been so I I was thrilled at some of what was going on in Inglorious Bastards, but that movie also to me there's a lot of there's there's much that's erratic about that. Yeah, because um, it's supposed to be a TV series. So and I don't feel just come and go. yeah, and that that might account for some of my issues with it. But even I really didn't like Hateful Eight. Uh, I didn't. I don't even remember Django Unchained. That just did nothing for me. So I'd kind of given Goggins. up. I'd kind of yeah. given up on uh, Quentin Tarantino going into this. Uh, Goggins Tarantino. And I don't feel that this is erratic at all. No. Indulgent, yes. But but everything in this – I mean I, I don't want to get too effusive, but everything in this like works for me. And there, there's nothing that I watch this thinking, I don't what, – what? Why is that there? Nothing took me out of I think what Quentin Tarantino was trying to do. Uh, I felt like I was really walked through this story that he wanted to tell, a way that he wanted me to feel – uh, an experience he wanted me to have, like nothing really felt nothing felt out of sorts for for me in the way that uh, a lot of his last few movies have. And people driving that counts as acting because Brad Pitt is driving through traffic like he like a stuntman would. So yeah. there's there's this famous bit of footage of Zoe. Uh, is it? Oh, no, it's Uma Thurman, right. Uma Thurman oh, for yeah, Kill Bill yeah, she, being asked to drive really fast 
in a in a little uh, rickety sports car down the road, and she she drives it into a tree, and uh, she gets. I mean, she's not majorly hurt, but obviously it's a very scary experience for her. And she has later uh, said that she felt pressured to do this, and she shouldn't he have. Did. He, he apologized. He said right, and exactly, he apologized, and things are fine. I remember this coming up early on in the Me Too movement. Because the um, road was too curvy. I thought. Well, well, here's the thing. Drive down a straight road. <laughs> Here's the thing. I understand what the, what shot he was trying to get. Like I yeah. understand watching yeah. this movie, scenes of people driving, what Quentin Tarantino wanted, why he wanted that. Yeah. And yeah, like obviously, and I'm sure he's learned, he should have used a stuntman or CG or whatever. But watching this, this is what – this is how you use scenes of people driving and listening to music and – terrain flashing around them because where they're driving is important as who is driving and what they're driving and what they're listening to it's all of yeah, a piece. commercials yeah, yeah the commercials exactly and the, the volume control like there's yeah. a part where when brad pitt pulls into his trailer he's like in the valley and you can hear different people's radios coming in at these different volumes all around like khj and, yeah. I, and i and i recognized every fucking logo which made me feel super old I was like two <laughs> when this happened, or one, I think. So Justin D. Heard says, uh, I couldn't really get over the extended takes of just the camera in the backseat of the car shooting over the stunt double's shoulders through the front window. Um, and uh, it's interesting to me to hear you say you know exactly what Tarantino was going for, Tom, uh, in the in the car sequences. Because there were a couple, couple of car sequences during this where I was like thinking – you know you could trim this. Um, and then in those scenes where he's driving and we're behind him, we're in the back seat of the car basically with a camera over his shoulder or over his stunt double shoulder, as Justin says. Uh, I kept thinking, this is this is a classic setup for a car accident. Uh, but that never happens. So what do you, <laughs> what do you think it, what do you think is his purpose? Because of the camera, you mean? I, I, I mean, I, I think it's like another director might sucker punch you with a car wreck, yeah. But I, I don't yeah. think – I'm not sure why that – I mean, yeah, I guess if, if you – I'm not sure why that would happen or I, I never felt that was going to happen. Um, and, and if it did, it certainly would have surprised me and I'm not sure you know, if, if he'd had that in there. I suspect there would have been a reason, but I never was worried about that. But you, you're absolutely right. That's how a lot of directors will sucker punch you with a car wreck, sure. Um, right. But but here's the deal is I I feel part of that is that uh, L A is such a car town like car culture the the experience of being in your car and getting somewhere and that freedom and that exhilaration and this was something too that went into a lot of the counterculture movies uh, in the 60s and the 70s where like, like Vanishing Point where cars were associated with freedom uh, and with counterculture and with escaping uh, the man it eventually the became kitsch like Smokey and the Bandit but there was this idea and I think Hollywood you know living in L A driving anywhere everywhere partly gives way to this. But there's this idea that a car is freedom, and and that a car is you, you listen you're listening to the radio, and it's it's you, it's a, it's a it's a sensual experience uh, driving, uh, yeah. and I, yeah. I think the the length of time that Tarantino enjoys it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is certainly merited because I think that he makes it as sensual as it should be. Like I, I think he he breathes uh, life and sensuality and texture and sound into these that they didn't feel like they went on too long for me. But I do feel like, Justin, again, if the movie's not working for you, yeah, it's indulgent. Everything's and good for you. And if there's something that tastes awesome, I want to be indulged in it. If you don't like the taste of it, 
it, you know, it's something you don't want to keep eating. Sure, I understand that. This is what driving looked and felt like when traffic was a third what it is now. Like these, like this is another reason it's a period piece. Right, like right. That time of sure. freedom is so gone now. It's just so, well, it's well I, I love the way you that you put that, Tom, because um, I drive a ton uh, of miles almost every day, um, but I just love driving. And, uh, if, you know, if I have to find alternate routes or whatever, I might complain about traffic or this and that, but that I didn't under, I didn't, I didn't recognize until you just said that that sense of freedom was a new thing that was happening for people at that time. And that makes a great amount of sense because I, I can't remember what movie I saw. I saw a movie recently, uh, that where a character said, Hey, you want to go for a drive? And it was just, we're not going anywhere. We're just going for a drive. Uh, and that is that sense of, you know, rolling down the windows and waving your hand out the air like you're, surf, like you're doing windsurfing with your hand. Um, and uh, you kind of call to mind that moment in uh, Pulp Fiction when John Travolta's gotten high and he's driving down the road. Uh, in his uh, car with the top down and just enjoying the wind and the feel of the road. So well put. Yeah, and that, that becomes a fixture of 70s cinema too, I think. That, yeah. Oh, it does? Not just with – you're not just talking well, about – Well, no, what part. I'm saying with, with, with movies like Vanishing Point, and there's a, a movie called A Two-Lane Blacktop. Uh, wait, Black uh, – yeah, I think Two-Lane Blacktop. Uh, yeah, just the, the you know cars as, as freedom, just as, as a whole – subset of 70s cinema yeah uh you, so you're not just talking about things like bullet which are car chase movies. oh yeah, yeah. bullets a steve mcqueen <laughs> bullets a dumb detective show that happens to have uh an an unfairly celebrated car chase in it <laughs> i'm not a fan of bullet yeah but no bullets a 70 by the way bullet is like 70s detective uh movie but it's not a cars as freedom movie uh it's two lane blacktop a 70s movie yeah oh very james taylor's great in it and he's not he's not an actor which is part of why he's great in it yeah james james taylor the mu musician yeah yeah holy one, do you know tulane blacktop no oh that, yeah what you would totally be into that yeah what year is it it's got to be super early 70s 70 i think it might be 71 if it is 70s so uh, dual I, I thought it might be 60s but well Duel, by the way, is in it like like duel is this idea of like cars as as scary things like 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 cars as instruments of murder, and that's like a whole other strain. Um, but yeah, duel, by the way, isn't that seventies? Like, yeah, there's got to be. Well, of course, right? It predates Jaws even. Um, yeah, I mean that's oh. you know cars cars and driving. It was such like a novelty uh, as it emerged in the U.S., and then it became a, kind of a cultural phenomenon manifesting itself in different ways, ranging from stuff like two-lane blacktop to duel, um, which Cars then becomes Smokey and the like, Bandit or Christine. You know, they, they sort of take those divergent paths. And then, of course, Maximum Overdrive. Maximum Overdrive is the culmination of all of it, Dingus. That is the piece de resistance to all car movies, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't get more Overdrive than that. Thanks, Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> no bounce, no play. Uh, <laughs> Justin thinks the movie should have opened on Leo doing the Red Stripe commercial. 
I didn't like the, the red stripe. That's the, uh, red, the apple. red apple. Red apple commercial. Yeah, red stripe is Jamaican beer. <laughs> would, I would right. love yeah. that, though. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I often don't. It's like the music. Oh, so I love the movie Hereditary, but the music at the end, like Ari Aster, no, I, uh, I want to cut without that. Uh, and I, I'm not sure I wanted. Uh, I didn't want to be left with Rick Dalton throwing a temper tantrum on a commercial set. I didn't. About being fat too. Yeah. Like I, now he now he's vain and stupid. Like an well, idiot. the thing is, now yeah, he's a like buffoon. Well, they set him up like that's the beauty of the scene where Sam Wanamaker comes into the trailer and is saying, yeah, we're going to give you hippie hair and we're going to give you a long droopy mustache and we're going to put you in a fringe coat like hippies wear. And like they're setting him up to be a clown uh, and we expect he's going to be a clown. Um, And instead, like the dignity that he salvages out of that sequence in that in that that whole sequence. there. Can you do the cigarette commercial before that? Like, is it an appearance? Like it's before it might it might be Kelly start. Wand, but I I didn't want that because I didn't want my last shot. Like I loved seeing now we see three PO again. Yeah, exactly. I loved seeing him ascend into the heaven of the tape mansion, uh, and then I'm reminded, oh look now, yeah, exactly. Now we see three PO again. He's a vapid dipshit. Kelly. So I don't I don't know why Tarantino put that in the credits, but I don't want it there. So all right, yeah, fine. I'm I'm getting did, up and I'm leaving the theater when that, I did, before that starts. I did like that moment where Sam. Uh, Wanamaker, what's his name? Yeah, Sam Wanamaker. Yeah. Um, uh, says to him, I didn't hire you to be a cowboy, Rick. I hired you right. to be an actor. <laughs> You're better than that. Uh, and then he has that whole breakdown and then goes back with Tim Oliphant, whose name is Johnny Madrid, <laughs> which is why I said Christian Barcelona. Oh, um, okay. Now I get it, Dingus. Jesus. <laughs> uh, uh, where... He has that breakdown and he talks to the mirror and that's that weird mirror shot. Yeah. Uh, it's Foxcatcher, Channing Tatum. And he comes back in and <laughs> throws throws the girl on the floor and she's like, it's okay, I've got pads. <laughs> so weird. And it was really like she, the, the little girl was just so over the top precocious and I think it was all just a setup for this point where she leans in and says that was the, the best acting ever. Right. Like the fact that that's the character that validates him. When Sam Wanamaker yeah. comes over and says it, he doesn't know if that's just a director blowing smoke up his ass, which he's probably had all his career. Like, but when that She's little girl, genius. when that little girl, this picture of perfection, leans over and whispers that in his ear, like that's an, an incredibly poignant moment of validation to him, and right. I think to us as an audience too, yeah. uh, because we're watching that thinking, wait, he's. Because the, the whole thing is being set up too is, hey, look how dumb and goofy these westerns were, and all this tough talk, and yeah. you know, here's Luke Perry, <laughs> like all of that was kind of being set up. I, I think as a, as a lark, um, and as it as it's going on, you're kind of thinking, oh, wait a minute, like you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's kind of good, and and he's really like hitting the lines when he gets them finally, uh, and he's like. I think we're supposed to be a little taken aback that he's as good as he is, uh, which I think is how he feels. Uh, and I think that, that little girl is as this almost like manic pixie dream girl character uh, when mm-hmm. she comes in and tells us, yeah, you just saw what you saw, audience. And she says that to him, too. You just – what you just felt, yes, that was right. That You were good. Uh, like it's just a beautiful little moment for to me. Um, Let's get to uh, monologue. I like that, too. I, I just – you know, you you guys, I mean, I would slightly disagree about the this is the most vulnerable you've seen him because I'm such a fan of the Revenant, uh, and I just saw him break down so so far on that movie, um, and 
Uh, so I he was playing more of a character then, and this I can picture Leo, the actor, kind of having these concerns. Maybe I don't know. Well, the oh, Revenant probably, too is oh. also the Revenant. He's a very tough guy. Um, like the Revenant is someone who yeah. is not emotionally like is someone who is is broken down and destroyed. Yeah, but he's not a vulnerable person. Like he's not an insecure person. Uh, it reminded me a little oh, bit of okay. his. Um, uh, not Howard Hawks, uh, Howard super- Hughes in the, in the Aviator, where he has hearing issues and he's out with famous people and he can't quite make out what they're saying, and there's this insecurity about being out with them. It reminded me of that, um, and even you know like what's eating Gilbert Grape, of course, like that's a super vulnerable character, but that's super early in his career. Um, but yeah, you're right, Dingus. Like he, like he, Leonardo DiCaprio can be so emotionally open, and The Revenant is a great example of that. Um, but that's a character who's just really, I mean, he's a mountain man who, who's just physically and emotionally destroyed. Uh, whereas here, it's just a guy who's emotionally vulnerable and insecure. Like, it's a guy that I think we can all relate to. The guy in The Revenant is, like, almost superhuman. I could never, I would never make it past one swipe from that stupid bear. (laughs) (laughs) So The Revenant's kind of amazing, but I understand, you know, that, I think everybody can understand that insecurity. And I love, too, how Tarantino, and this is... This is just the mark of a, of a director who knows what he's doing. It's just so tight on his face and his eyes, on Leonardo DiCaprio's face and eyes yep. in that scene. Um, like, that's just, that's how you shoot, that's how an actor acts with with his face, and that's how you shoot an actor who's acting with his face. Um, I love that, I actually love this, the distinction you just made, because that makes perfect sense to me. Because uh, the difference between physical and emotional vulnerability and insecurity uh, might be a thin line, but it is a line. And uh, I I really like the way that you describe that. And it's kind of fun. And I think it's the temptation we all also felt with Brad Pitt for a long time, but it's so easy to dismiss Leonardo DiCaprio as, yeah, the guy from Titanic, like the teen heartthrob. Uh, Like he's he's got Titanic riding around on his shoulders. Scorsese (laughs) showed us... Not so much in Gaze New York. He made... Didn't what, he make Aviator? Yeah, I love Aviator. Yeah. Aviator's yeah. good. Yeah. Departed's... He's good in Departed. Oh, yeah, I keep forgetting Departed. Yeah, hmm, okay. And uh, he's not bad in Gaze of New York. It's just he's up against Daniel Day-Lewis. Right, what are you going to do? Yeah. 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 Fair enough. But... Yeah, something. I'm not a fan of Departed. Uh, it's got issues, but... There it is. <laughs> Kelly Wan, that's a, that's a great way to sum it up, but there it is. Very nice. If you're a broke stuntman, you live in a trailer. <laughs> but if you're a rich actor, you want a trailer. Uh, do you guys know Margaret, Margaret Qualley, the girl who plays Pussycat from anything? I don't, know. Kelly Wan, do you recognize her? <laughs> I recognize the name. Strangely. She was in – so I, I tried to – and uh, you know – Frickin' Lindelof. I tried to watch the layover. Leftover, no, layover. Layover's the William H. Macy thing. When will you learn? With, you with learn? Kate Upton and uh, Alexander Daddario. Leftovers oh, yeah. is the TV series with uh, Justin Theroux, which I try. You know, I've heard, yeah, it gets really good in the finale. Like, I've heard it's a cool series over the whole arc, and I've gotten partway into the first season, and I just can't do it. I can't make Did it. Did you I... think it was the layover when you started it? No. <laughs> I knew it. It's, it's a terrible name for something, by the way, the leftovers. It sounds horrible. Um, 
but uh, so I started watching it, and Margaret Margaret Qualley plays Justin Thoreau's daughter, and she just looks like a hottie teenage girl. Like she's a typical thing from a CW show where she's supposed to be a high school student, but obviously she's twenty something. Um, and she's got, as, as near as I can tell from the early bits of the leftovers I've seen, she's got a thankless part in that. Um, but Margaret Qualley is freaking amazing. She's Andy McDowell's uh, uh, daughter, and I would implore anyone listening, and especially you two jokers, as soon as this podcast is over, I want you to go Google Kenzo World, K-E-N-Z-O World. Uh, It's a commercial that Spike Jones shot for, I think, like a French clothing company or something but it's it's like three minutes and i did just if you don't know who margaret qualley is and this is your first time seeing her because i think she's, she's so much fun in this please watch kenzo world google it watch it and uh thank me later how did you you, you just go you just googled and found it um i just had heard something about her in it um yeah and i've seen her in i know her from one other thing which i can't remember at this point were you um, doing a margaret qualley night is it like nicholas cage pachinko commercials i have nothing to say until you've seen it all right interesting you know it's what after, time in Kenzo world so the listeners on the podcast uh sorry but after when, as soon as we finish recording the three of us i'm going to make them watch it online concurrently with me so i'm sorry you guys are going to miss that uh-huh yeah uh let me ask you uh one other question because you guys know some of these movies better than I do. Uh, when he talks about um, Tower of Babel style shooting, do you know, is that a thing? Yeah, well, well I, in Spaghetti Westerns, they all spoke different languages. Yeah. They would dub them. So they would say their lines in whatever language they spoke naturally and then dub it. There's a, uh, a French submarine techno thriller on Netflix called uh, – it's something else about a wolf. I'm confusing it with the horrible slasher Tate Murders movie. Uh, maybe like – maybe that's Day of the Wolf, but something, something, wolf, something. Uh, it's supposed to be like a Hunt for Red October kind of deal, and it's also – it's an international production, and I don't know why they thought they could get away with it, but there are definitely people – whose voices are who i think doing their lines in french and they're dubbed in english it's that same kind of thing and this is a contemporary production like it just came out this year netflix uh distributed in the u.s but yeah that that's how some things were shot dingus just because it was impractical to get around the the language uh differences you know bring someone famous over from the u.s just have them work to sell the movies uh and and also sometimes when productions move around um which gives them a certain charm because the audio quality is consistently weird, and the faces are all different. Like it's just a, I don't know. It makes the West seem cooler than it was because you have all well, these you can, like exotic skin tones and wearing awesome ponchos. And they're they're definitely like I I can tell movies sometimes when they're shot uh, in like Eastern Europe or or Canada. Like you can tell by things like the 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 accents of some of the smaller roles or even just the structures of you know the the faces in chernobyl were amazing i mean it was shot in lithuania but were just amazing for how they didn't look like american extras they didn't look like extras in a in a british production um so that kind of thing yeah you're right kelly wand it's almost like seeing the strings on a model rocket ship and special effects like there's a certain charm i love that 
to that that cobbled together nature of stuff. Because uh, I picture the set and the guy having to hold that. That's why I like the guys in suits Godzilla movies that you scorn. Right. It's because right. I'm picturing being on the set and having these like Bruce Lee kind of guys like going around dancing and these. Guys. And well, back know, in the day, I, yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, back, I, back. I know. I know it's charming now, but I wonder how people felt about it then. Probably loved it or didn't but, notice. Well, the, I mean, the spaghetti westerns were I like were were those made to to be sold in the U.S. Kelly Wands? Like, I actually don't know the, yeah. the story, but they were okay. But like, I didn't they know made if they more were money than they were expected to. Like, because okay. there were other movies, but like those Hercules movies. Steve oh yeah, movies. yeah, yeah. Right, right. Oh, really, okay. The weird part of me to me is the word spaghetti, like a spaghetti western. Like, there are a why Kilbasa, that particular? Right? There are kielbasa westerns. No lie. Yeah. Yeah, western <laughs> shot in Poland. Would you use food to describe, like, would a an American martial arts movie be called like a sushi foo? <laughs> well, Asians? I, I, <laughs> like I did like I did like there was a line, and I don't remember the exact line, but there was a line in this that was like, uh, "Polish TV is so much worse than American." Right, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's. Yeah. You've heard that to be true. Dutch, and, so. and given that we're talking about Roman Polanski, I thought that was funny. It's so weird too how his name has become fraught with meaning on on so many different levels at different times, and uh, like I, I don't know, especially after watching this too. Like I don't know whether to feel bad for Polanski or to go back to hating him or to go back to begrudgingly accepting him when he does cool stuff like Ghost Part Rider. I'm so confused how to I should feel about Roman Polanski. <laughs> no, he's married well, to Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate, so he well, must he's be an awesome husband. Right. He straight up called no, he straight up called. A rapist in this movie. I mean, somebody calls him a rapist in this movie. What? Or oh, refer- I didn't catch that. that. Is it refers- the Steve McQueen scene? No, it, it doesn't say it to his face, but just refers to him as a rapist. Is um, it the scene though where the girl's talking to Steve McQueen and he's pointing at him? I don't remember actually. Wow, I, just I did rem- not catch I, that. I just remember somebody like saying a string of adjectives about this guy and. One of them was the word rapist, and uh, and I had a really hard time a few years ago when we did a top ten list, uh, including Ghost Rider, because, you know, that whole artist art thing. Well, yeah, that's the. Th- it's such a. You, I'm so tired of that. Like, you just got to go through that door and go. Like, I'm not gonna let it affect my Rosemary's Baby viewings. I just refuse. Like. There's I love many that, artists are terrible. I love that you caught Saperstein's name, Kelly Wan, because that was something for it. that was something for guys like us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> nice little touch. Uh, all right, well, the uh, movies like that, like all the little things, I got the sense that he didn't care if other people didn't get it. Like right. it was there just for me if you caught it, like just for half a second, like one person will get it. And I'm always very grateful for those little right, right, getting in the corner flourishes. Because most uh, well, of the movies we see suck. Well, we're going to have a tough act to follow, so let's just not even do a movie next week. Or let's do nine do, movies. Let's do a three by three. And yeah, we'll do nine movies that – what will these nine movies have in common, Dingus? They will have insects and bugs, not spiders. No spiders, <laughs> you people. Spiders is a subset of bugs, spies. so let's just go with insects. Insects. Yeah. <laughs> what about crustaceans? So they have to have six legs, not eight. And Dingus, what? How can the listeners participate in this? All right, so the listeners can participate by sending in their favorite insects in movies to three x three at quarter to three dot com by next 
Sunday, which is the 20... August 25th, midnight Pacific. Tell us your favorite insects, yeah. and we will include those on the air. We want to know what they are. I know you're listening, and you're thinking of one or two. You know what? Write them down. Write just one down. Just tell us what it is, and write one sentence about why you like it. Tell us about your insect fondness uh, in movies. Uh, and we'll do that. I'll do that with uh, my friends here. I'm Tom Chick. We'll be back with Christian... Maliski. It's Christian Moroski. And my buddy Kelly Wand. Is a snake legless or is it a leg? Because I enjoy sleep, Netflix thinks I'd enjoy Roma. That's a great idea, Cato. Dingus, Jeremy Sisto's weird, dude. I had to do sword training with him one time. I prefer that we be more capable and prepared than lucky. Observation, reflection, faith, and determination. In this way, we may navigate the path as it unfolds before us. All right, and we have, what, eight more recharge cycles to go before we get to Aurigai 6? Is that a question, sir? Yes, Walter, that's a question. That is correct. We all get up to leave again when suddenly this happens. Hey, y'all, something of the Tomb Raiders. Walton Goggins here again (laughs) with a spicy new message. Taco Bell taint the only fast food joint to get into the hotel business. Hold on to your choppers, spread your cheeks, and get ready for the grand old opening of the new single star Gordon's Tacos, Hotel Grande Supremo Caliente Experioso Varago. Coming to Chino and Ensenada this September 11th only, just in time, Cinco de Mayo. Summer may be almost over, but the aftertaste will never be when you book a room at Hotel Goggins Tacos. Our rates are so reasonable, you'll beg to pay more somewhere else. Best of all, they come in every size, from in-cell to in-bread. Our bed sheets are made of actual corn tortillas that'll keep you nice and crispy all night long. And our pillowcases are stuffed with cheese, graded bi-weekly by my own prison labor. Question. Any other hotels, bathroom, shower heads, squirt melted cheese and hot sauce? Didn't think so. Mm-hmm. That's what I call muy dinero. What's the day at Goggins Taco Hotel look like? Rise and shine at 6 a.m. shop to a free incontinental burrito for only $12.99. Then make your way to costume and near the soda machine and put on your pink hats and hairnets. Y'all be working a double shift today at certain food to our very own hotel staff. Yeehaw! Now this is Goggins. Then it's off to the dumpster. Let's leave this place cleaner than how we found it. Youngsters carry the bag for free with proof of age and purchase. Enjoy what Mr. Glass was modestly compensated to call classic Tex-Mex amenities, such as drive through room service, extra napkins, and indestructible pinatas shaped like my teeth. Just listen to what this satisfied guest has to say. Uh, Faye Dunaway told me this was for a Del Taco commercial. <laughs> That's what I call testimonial. So slaughter your family's appetite forever today. Book a room at Hotel Goggins Taco Supremia Tentado. Because nothing less is just a gog. <laughs>